Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. You're hearing Connecticut-based educator and member of the Passamaquoddy tribe, Chris Newell. He's teaching acclaimed chalice Yo-Yo Ma, a powwow song. Newell is singing Up the Sun at Dawn in the tradition of the Wabanaki, or People of the Dawnland. It's a confederation of four tribes in Maine, including the Passamaquoddy. This is one scene in Reciprocity Project, a docuseries centering indigenous perspectives on our relationship to the planet. The series is intended to inspire conversation and action on climate. Today on Where We Live, we hear about Newell's involvement with the series, and later, a conversation on the Native food movement with Andy Murphy. She's a Navajo journalist and host of the Toasted Sister podcast. But joining us first is Tracy Rector. She's a filmmaker and the managing director of storytelling at Nia Taro, the nonprofit that co-produced this docuseries with The Upstander Project. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Tracy, talk to us about reciprocity as a theme that's central to indigenous communities, this recognition that we are in a relationship with the planet. Why was this the focus of the docuseries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in April 2020, it was the height of the pandemic, and we were sitting there and just thinking about, um, you know, how we found ourselves in this crisis. And instead of going down the route of contemplating, you know, more trauma, we began to discuss how can we think through some solutions for future generations and for to today. And we began having conversations with uh, good friends and relatives and thought about the solutions that many Indigenous communities hold about being in good relationship, not only with one another, but with the earth. And from that, we began talking about the experience and way of life of reciprocity and being in balance. And so we reached out to some filmmakers and community partners and asked what they thought about telling stories that center reciprocity. And um, everyone said yes. And everyone also said there's not just one word in our language that means reciprocity. It's a way of life. So that's how the series came to be. Well, I love that because I think, especially since this came at the height of the pandemic, a lot of people went into nature to find some calm. And I remember there was a Pueblo woman in the in the series that said, this land gives us life. And I think this series certainly gave life to that kind of storytelling and the fact that you have so many indigenous partners and consultants and producers who became co-directors through the production the production process. Can you talk to us about why the collaborative filmmaking was so integral and how did you go about doing that? 
Mm -hmm. uh, it was very interesting to produce stories during the pandemic because we had to think through um, how we could do it virtually. And so it was a uh, necessarily so a creative collaboration, just using so many hearts and minds to um, approach storytelling in a new way. And, you know, at the heart of Reciprocity Project, we really wanted this to be a movement of healing. And, you know, we discussed how necessary allies are, how necessary solidarity work is. And even though we're centering Indigenous value systems, knowledge, ways of life, stories, we recognize that there's also this opportunity to teach and co-create and build together new ways of being in relationship. We want to bring in one of those co-directors that brought that relationship together from Connecticut is uh, Chris Newell. He's the co-founder and director of education at Ogunwok Educational In uh, Initiative, and uh, he's also a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Catherine. So you were a co-director on the film called Weshigalbuk, The Approaching Dawn, which we heard a little snippet earlier. Can you tell us the significance of seeing up the sun at dawn? Was, is, there a, is the sun a symbol of something? Yeah, so, um, you know, in, in Maine and uh, across into uh, New Brunswick and up into Quebec, uh, as well as New Hampshire, Vermont, um, the tribes collectively uh, know ourselves as Wabanaki or people of the dawn. And uh, it's part of our cosmology that we were placed in this particular geography because that's where the sun hits uh, Turtle Island first. And uh, as part of our, you know, living there, our, our, uh, we have a responsibility, um, you know, to welcome the day uh, for a few different reasons. But one of which is really uh, just a remembrance of, of thanks that this day is here and also a way of taking the wrongs that have been done in the past um, and trying to find a way, uh, you know, when a new uh, a day gives you a new opportunity um, to right those wrongs. I have to say, uh, my producer, Katie Pellico, and I this morning had that moment seeing the sunrise, and we did feel that sort of new day coming. So really appreciate all of you being here and sharing this moment with us. And we'll talk more about how you envision this after a short break later. But first, I want to talk about how did you get involved in this project? We know you worked with Tracy previously on another documentary called Donlin, which won an Emmy in 2019 for outstanding research. How did you get involved? Um, well, initially, uh, I was not meant to be uh, part of the um, uh, the uh, the first cohort of filmmakers. Um, I was working at the Abbey Museum as the executive director at the time, and uh, you know, through Neotero and the Upstander Project, uh, Yo Yo Ma had uh, contacted and let them know that he was coming to Acadia National Park. And, um, you know, the, the contact was made to me with a simple question, what could Yo-Yo Ma do with music that would be meaningful to Wabanaki people? And my suggestion was not a collaboration. Uh, it was for Yo-Yo Ma to experience uh, what you experienced this morning, um, you know, what it would be like to play his music as the sun rose on the coast. Um, and then it, it grew from there. But, uh, you know, my uh, involvement with the Upstander Project and with Tracy, um, they felt it prudent to document, uh, you know, not knowing exactly what we were going to capture on film. And we'll get to that experience in a little bit, but but how was, how, what, what was going through your mind when you realized somebody like Yo-Yo Ma wanted to do this project? 
<laughs> uh, I mean, what do you say to that? Um, you know, this is a person that has a you know over a five decade career, world renowned. Uh, at the time, eighteen Grammys, now nineteen Grammys. Um, it, it's it's a, a little bit uh, of uh, a, a lot of pressure, I guess you could say, in some ways, but. Um, that was all alleviated uh, when uh, his producer in, in uh, our collaborators first met together and Yo-Yo Ma showed up at the meeting on Zoom. And uh, what can I say? He's uh, a tremendous human being, an example for a lot of us to follow. Uh, he was so welcoming, inviting, and he was the one that insisted uh, on a collaboration of some sort. And, uh, you know, that's the spirit with which we uh, entered this was literally that Yo-Yo Ma was coming into Wabanaki homelands as a guest and that we as Wabanaki peoples would host him uh, and treat him so well that he would want to come back. And that was literally the... Uh, the basis of the relationship that started and it was beautiful you know it, it stayed that way really a uh, so all of the things that yo-yo ma has done throughout his life so amazing uh but um you know he he came down to a, a you know like a, a human to human level and that's where we really connected with one another and it was just an amazing feeling to be part of that well, I can tell you we're all basking in his and your glory right now. Uh, we're going to take a short break. This is where we live. I'm Catherine Shen. Tracy and Chris will stay with us. Coming up, a Connecticut-based composer joins us. And later, a conversation on the native food movement with Navajo journalist and host of the Toasted Sister podcast, Andy Murphy. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This hour, we're spotlighting Reciprocity Project. It's a docuseries centering indigenous perspectives on the planet and our climate all in an effort to create a paradigm shift, reframing our relationship to the earth, other living beings, and one another. Joining us now is Jennifer Kresberg. She's a composer based in New Britain who worked on this docuseries and a member of the Tuscarora Nation of North Carolina. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. 
And still with us is Chris Newell. He is one of the co-directors of the docuseries and Tracy Rector, who is one of the producers of Reciprocity Project. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Jennifer, we know many of the episodes in this series explore the quiet, reverent moments with nature. How did you go about thinking about the role of music for this? Um, I watched the, the 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 couple of episodes I was asked to compose music for. I I watched them over and over and over, and or watched the unedited cuts over and over and over, and the music just kind of wrote itself. <laughs> Honestly, just watching the uh, the footage and and getting a feel for for what the filmmakers were were conveying in the stories they were telling about their communities. What did you think they were conveying? Like what was going through your mind when you were watching those clips? Um the first my my favorite one was uh the first one by the Gwich'in ladies and um it was just really beautiful. They had very beautiful footage of their land and um their their relationship with the reindeer which gives sustains them in, in all their foods and and um, pretty much everything. And it also, you know, their land informs everything, including their music. So there is some of their music in there a little bit. And um, but the they had asked me, the ladies, uh, Princess and Alicia had asked me to to help compose for their their segment. So I had to to sort of come in and and feel their vibe so to speak with lack of better words without coffee this morning and and um just sort of try and and orally lend support to what i was seeing and also through a couple of zoom meetings with the ladies really really nice people well, I have to tell you, even without coffee, you are bringing the vibes for sure. Um, we know Chris's episode didn't require a lot of composing, given the live performances that was uh, woven throughout. And I know you've been watching this over and over again, but was there an episode or a moment that stuck out specifically to you? Um, I'm not just saying this because I'm a Libra, but honestly, each episode had one or two moments that really stuck out to me that 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 spoke to me personally anyway you know we're all different but we're i guess we're all the same too but i was really moved by by princess and alicia's episode because it it um they had babies (laughs) they had the babies and they had their dog and you know it was just they were so um they were just intimately allowing uh the viewers to to sort of peek into their lives in a not so much a voyeuristic way but the way they filmed everything it didn't feel voyeuristic but it just felt like they were sharing and they were saying this is us up here and i really really got it i really felt it it made me want to go visit honestly and go eat dinner with them well, Chris, I think you should consider this an open invitation. Um, we want to point out too, Chris, that uh, you're a longtime member of the Mystic Singers, which is an award-winning intertribal powwow drum group based in Connecticut. How did that experience inform how you thought about this performance with Yo-Yo Ma and the film? 
Yeah, so I, I've been a singer with the Mystic River Singers for over 20 years. Um, and our lead singer, who uh, we lost in 2018, uh, is a man named Kenny Merrick Jr. And uh, for be, prior to him coming out to Connecticut and, uh, you know, uh, helping us form, um, he he uh, performed with the American Indian Dance Theater uh, through the 90s. And that was in the, the heyday of it when they were traveling the world, you know, so stage performance and, and performance in general was something that he was familiar with. And we as Mystic River Singers, uh, kind of the supplement, you know, the the, the Powell singing we were doing, we created something called Red Bear Productions uh, and started to put on performances, one of which was at um, in Hartford, uh, which was very well received. And so with with that kind of an experience, and I, I'm sensing that this is very personal. You mentioned, you know, human to human level with Yo Yo Ma, and I'm assuming also with your with your fe- fellow uh, brothers and sisters. Um, is it particularly important not to perform certain ceremonies to camera? And that's a funny Absolutely. question. That's a funny question because uh, we're talking about docu series right now, right? Yeah, that's such a good question. Uh, you know, because um, you know, in the formation or the creation of this performance, I was actually given you know, the the kind of the keys to, to write the performance. Um, and, you know, I did base it off of, a, you know, a ceremony that happens in Wabanaki territory, you know, which involves, you know, something a little bit more deeper than than just music. Uh, but it is a sunrise ceremony with the idea of, of welcoming the sun. Uh, so there's there is an actual ceremony that goes along with it. And uh, we don't want to perform ceremony for camera that because that, that really takes the spirit away from it. And that's definitely not what occurred with Wetchkawa. Uh, instead, we took the elements that are simply human, uh, you know, uh, centered. Uh, any human being, you know, living in this, this day and age that, that lives in the Dawnland can go and experience uh, sunlight on the coast. Any human being uh, can play music or sing to the sun uh, as it rises. And uh, we wanted to keep it at that level when it came to performance and uh, hopefully transcend boundaries, uh, you know, culturally. Well, speaking of transcending boundaries, let's listen to what Yo-Yo Ma has to say at one point during the film. The fact that you can think of seven generations back and seven generations forward is a big lesson for us. Who can think that way? You can. The way you take care of the land and the way you take care of one another. We can learn from that. And so your gift to us we now have to carry forward and do. Jennifer, I want to ask you to um, share with us, what, do you th- what did you think about Yo-Yo Ma's sentiment? Um, it's always nice to hear non-Indigenous uh, to the U.S. people uh, have their come-to-Jesus moments <laughs> about um, how, the, the land, how our relationship to land and place um, informs most things in our lives. And, um, yeah, it just, it just affects me in that it's just nice to see other people expressing that in the public eye, um, who people who, who are, or in the mainstream or what's considered the mainstream, it just gives me hope. That's, that's how that quote affected me. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment. And uh, we know you grew up in Hartford, Jennifer. Uh, what are your thoughts on the importance of where we live, where you live? Yeah, I was born and raised in Hartford. My parents both went to Hart uh, School of Music. Um, but they weren't from Connecticut, but they settled. Um, 
just the what I was taught growing up and 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 what people have shared with me mentors uh, different mentors and what I was taught is is that you know when we say we are the land it, it isn't just a cute little sound bite it, it it really it's everything right you get your food from the land you get your your everything from the land all your ceremonies and your religious well at a certain time it was like that if you go back far enough for everybody globally it was like that um but that also affects your music too you get your music from the land too and um that's all <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. And and, and Tracy, I want to ask, you know, Yo-Yo Ma mentioned he was, he was, he admires the way uh, you take care of the land. And, and Jennifer just mentioned that we are the land. What are your thoughts about, about that? It's been such a privilege uh, to work with Yo-Yo Ma. He, in addition to collaborating on that episode, is also executive producer for the series. And he has traveled um, across uh, what we now call the United States um, in the East Coast and the West Coast and now the Kingdom of Hawaii. And he truly humbles himself and wants to understand better how to, um, as you know, Jen mentioned, how to be a good listener and a good neighbor and to um, engender all people to pause, listen, and learn what our earth is trying to teach us. Um, it's been just such a treat working with him and seeing someone of his stature um, take to heart and do the work and really um, take those steps to being in good relationship with Indigenous peoples. Well, it seems like uh, teaching and storytelling is the thread, which is why we're here having this conversation today. Uh, Chris, y- your late father helped you in thinking through this performance and the film. And I just want to say that we are so sorry for your recent loss. Wayne Newell championed the study and preservation of Native, Native American cultures and languages. Can you talk to us about his impact on the film and maybe a little bit about how he and Yo-Yo Ma really hit it off? Yeah, uh, what can I say? Uh, you know, when when given this project uh, by Yo-Yo Ma's team, you know, I turned to dad first. I, I, you know, I was uh, at a point in my life where I could still call my dad, uh, you know, to ask for advice. And, uh, you know, 50 plus years of work of language preservation for the Passamaquoddy language, uh, considered a national living treasure uh, by the Department of the Interior. Um, you know, the first thing he said to me when I when I said that this project was, you know, I described it to him, he said, you're going to feature our language, right? Uh, and so I already knew that that question was going to come, um, which is why the, the film uh, includes uh, uh, one of our linguists, Roger Paul, telling a story. And uh, it's intentional in the film that you don't even hear the English language spoken until my voice shows up about three minutes in the film. Um, you know, and that's, you know, the guidance of my father, you know, right there in, in the storytelling is that our language gets featured first. And, um, yeah, his impact, uh, what can I say? Uh, you know, we all had a life-changing experience during that morning, June 18th, 2021, uh, at Squidic Point. And, uh, you know, uh, the rehearsal night, the night before, um, you know, uh, 
uh, several special things happened. My father was there. He was giving us advice, you know, things like that. Um, and uh, uh, Secretary Hallen, who is the, the the Pueblo woman that you described that's in the film, uh, that's Secretary of the Interior, Deb Hallen, uh, you know, was actually there and recognized him uh, and uh, introduced herself and they had a good visit. And when Yo-Yo Ma showed up, my father had been dealing with nine and a half years of cancer treatment at the time. It was a little chilly. And when he showed up a little late to the uh, rehearsal, uh, he actually showed up with a blanket and wrapped it around my dad. And that's how they met each other. And that moment really spoke to my father quite a bit about who Yo-Yo Ma was. And they hit it off like they were old friends and had known each other for decades. Uh, and they stayed in contact with one another after the performance. And it was amazing to see. And those of us, I mean, Yo-Yo Ma's team, uh, everybody uh, that was involved with the creation of this all kind of feel after he's passed away um, that it was really his energy that drew us together that day for that important moment. Uh, you know, that, and that's that's kind of a sentiment we all feel in the heart. Well, I think we're feeling it in the studio too. What you just described feels like a warm blanket for us actually during this winter day. Um, and I wanna just touch on real quick, um, you mentioned, and we, we all saw that in, in the series, it, you you did start with the language and we don't hear your English coming in until much later. How are people reacting to that? What are people saying? How are people feeling? Well, it's very subtle, you know, but, uh, you know, and, and sometimes when we make these films, it's not necessarily for the English speaking audience. Um, you know, at, at least, that, you know, Tracy knows my involvement um, uh, when we make films uh, about indigenous cultures that we want, you know, the culture it comes from, um, you know, to be just as enamored with the film and representation. Um, so really, that was more about you know, uh, a young Wabanaki, uh, especially Passamaquoddy children, you know, seeing our representation and seeing our language, you know, uh, uh, represented, uh, you know, as primary uh, and English as a secondary, which is the truth of the matter. Uh, 12,000 years of existence in the Dawnland, uh, you know, English is the foreign language to this land. And that was something that was always brought up with in my household. Um, and I just want to give a really quick shout out. I work at the University of Connecticut. I want to give a quick shout out to my colleagues at uh, University of Connecticut, the NISI faculty, as well as the UConn uh, Native American Cultural Program students who are all listening in right now. Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> we, all, we all love a good shout out here. And um, there's, there's, there's so much at heart here for the series. You've mentioned you know, music and obviously the land is a huge character here and, and now also language. Uh, what were some other considerations you made in thinking about this performance? Yeah, there was a very big consideration here, you know, as, as Wabanaki performers, we're not on the level worldwide, uh, you know, uh, as as uh, uh, someone like Yo-Yo Ma, as far as, you know, our renown or or uh, how, how we're known. And, and somebody like Yo-Yo Ma, we have a tendency, you know, and, for, you know, for good reasons to put them on a pedestal. Um, you know, which, you know, kind of elevates them. And there was a really big challenge there. I did not want the Wabanaki performers to feel as if they were being token performers to Yo-Yo Ma, uh, which is where that segment that began the show with he and I performing to the other came from. Um, you know, powwow music is actually, for a Western classical trained musician, very difficult um, 
important to get the timing down because it is polyrhythmic and it has a swinging rhythm that they're just uh, completely unfamiliar with. And so was Yo-Yo Ma. Um, you know, so the idea with that particular segment was to have some fun. And that's what it was very lighthearted. Uh, and uh, he struggles through it a little bit. And you can see that in the film. And what it does is it, you know, it puts us once again on that human to human level. Um, you know, that, you know, as even as, as vaunted as his career is, uh, you know, all of us as human beings have something to learn. And that's what's really beautiful about that moment. Well, you just made me feel a little bit better describing that Yo-Yo Ma struggled a little bit during this. So um, that that's a good way for me to end this week, actually. Um, and we understand that this event turned into something of a summit of tribal, state, and federal leaders in Maine. Can you paint a picture of what that was like for you? Yeah, we, uh, you know, Yo-Yo Ma does pop-up performances. This, this was initially what that was meant to be. This was meant to be, you know, 20 people at Scooter Point trying to catch the sunrise would have just been lucky enough to see Yo-Yo Ma and us perform that morning. Uh, however, in the planning process, Acadia National Park, uh, you know, with about three weeks left, asked if De uh, Secretary Howland could uh, be invited. And we said, sure, why not? Uh, not really thinking that she would actually say yes, but she did. And so when that happened, happened, uh, she is the first Native American Secretary of the Interior. That position, you know, governs as Native peoples our lives, our day-to-day -day lives here in this country. And so it's historic for her to be there. And she was coming to Wabanaki homelands. So there's a sanctity of the government-to-government -government relationship between our tribes uh, within the state of Maine uh, and, and the federal government. And so we invited all of the tribal chiefs as a result to, you know, uh, to uh, preserve that sanctity. And, uh, you know, the Secretary of the Interior visits the state. They let the delegation know that they are coming. Uh, and so the uh, the Maine delegation, as well as the governor of Maine, uh, invited themselves to the performance. And so the talking circle, which was meant to be just a reflection of a, a bunch of people that were just happened to be there, ended up being a talking circle of tribal state and federal leaders. Uh, so I, I what I tell people is that I ended up, you know, in the way, uh, kind of like, um, you know, uh, taking care of a, a G20 summit uh, when it came to that portion of, of the performance. But I can say that the conversations that were had in that circle were so far ahead of where this country has been historically about the idea of conservation and the human involvement that is required for proper conservation and how we can learn from Wabanaki cultures in Acadia National Park. And, uh, you know, uh, I think that there will be waves from that, you know, that will uh, ripple outward, uh, you know, uh, in the world. And that's, once again, uh, the magic, I, I think, you know, my father, these were all friends of his, uh, you know, when it comes to the delegation of the state of Maine, as well as the tribal leaders. Uh, so uh, it's just another pointer that his energy was really the one that drew us all together. Well, now I was going to say what you describe, it makes me feel like learning is a magical experience and education feels to be another thread that sort of ties all of this together. And on that note, we know you partner with classrooms and museums around New England to work through Indigenous curriculum. What are some educational opportunities can you envision for this film series? So that's the great part about how this was created. The Upstander Project, when they create films, uh, you know, like Donland, they create a teacher's guide to go along with it. And so when they partnered with Tracy at Neotero, this was part of the, um, uh, the formula. 
is that we wouldn't just make uh, the films. There would be a, a teacher's guide to go along with it for educational purposes. And then uh, for some of the films, at least for ours, there's also a, a making of conversation with uh, the, the Wabanaki collaborators. So there's so much to learn, uh, not just about Wabanaki culture, but about re representation. How do Wabanaki peoples, you know, properly resent, uh, pre uh, represent ourselves uh, on film? Uh, you know, and, and it's it, there's a lot to learn about the process, the proper process to make that happen. And, uh, you know, Tracy and the Upstander Project uh, and everybody involved uh, were well aware of that. That's why they started the Reciprocity Project. Um, but you can learn so much from the materials if you go to the website reciprocityproject.org. Uh, yeah, reciprocity.org. Reciprocity.org. Sorry yeah. about that. No worries. Uh, in addition to the educational materials for um, K through 16, uh, the National Park Service is uh, utilizing the film and the educational materials in training uh, the Park Service employees, which has been fantastic. Well, Tracy Rector, Chris Newell, thank you both so much for your time today. It was a pleasure. And I just want to remind our listeners that you can also find links to this moving series and all of those educational resources on our website, sctpublic.org slash where we live. Uh, coming up next, we have Andy Murphy. She's a Navajo journalist and the host of the Toasted Sister podcast, the only award-winning podcast that's all about Native American food. She'll join us after a quick break. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. How and what we eat and how much reverence we have for those processes is an essential part of ind indigenous perspectives and traditions. This is a larger conversation we're having this hour around our relationship to our planet. And joining us now to discuss the Native food movement is Annie Murphy. She's a Navajo journalist and podcaster, also the creator and producer of the Toasted Sister podcast, which is the only award-winning show about Native American food, and radio producer with Native American Calling, the only live one-hour radio show about indigenous issues and topics. Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we know you've been with us this hour on Pacific Standard Time. Thank you so much for waking up early for this and listening to this conversation. Love to hear about your thoughts on how that factors into your considerations on Native food and the Native food movement. Yeah, no, I mean, that that's pretty much what it's all about. It's about, um, you know, bringing uh, perspectives of indigenous science and tradition, uh, you know, to the forefront uh, in our culinary, um, our culinary ways and our culinary journeys going forward. And what is that culinary journey going forward? How would you describe the Native food movement and the momentum right now? 
Yeah, so I, I would describe the Native food movement as, you know, a couple of different uh, parts of uh, Native America really working for uh, tr uh, Native food revitalization. I mean, I'm talking about agriculture, um, tribal agriculture, farming, um, uh, health. Um, you know, uh, science that's involved in all of this. I'm talking about the culinary arts and, uh, you know, just basically learning how to cook and then, uh, you know, bringing in those traditions, you know, really going back into your family, into your, um, you know, your, your, the ancestors in your family and asking them about how things were done long ago and how you can implement that into your life right now. And, you know, we're also talking about, um, like on the uh, legal and political level too, like how uh, tribal, um, how, how uh, federally recognized tribes are, you know, doing work in, you know, different sectors of the government to preserve uh, resources for our food. And um, there's a whole line of, uh, you know, activists and groups who are also uh putting in that that very important work to preserve resources and uh, make sure our food is, um, you know, uh, 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 available to everybody. And I, I think the momentum right now, you know, it's very, very exciting that, um, uh, you know, Native food is getting a lot of um, a lot of media attention in the last couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, I think people are starting to learn more about what Native American food is and how diverse um, uh, Native American food is and Native American people are, uh, I think we are, you know, I think the momentum right now, or, or at least what I'm very excited about seeing is kind of like all the entrepreneurship and businesses popping up around uh, creating access to indigenous food, like restaurants and, and uh, food companies. Would love to get into your history and your process of learning from your ancestors and your history of, of food. But, you know, for those who are not familiar with what native food is, and I know that's such a general question, but can you kind of give us an idea of what that looks like? Yeah. Uh, so native food is, is, uh, very, very diverse. Like what, what, uh, is indigenous to the Connecticut area is definitely not, uh, the same, uh, as what can be found here in New Mexico where I'm at. I'm, uh, currently in Albuquerque. So just, just, you know, by the land, the food is very different and by the tribes too. Like Navajo, um, you know, Navajo tribe, our culture and our language is very much different than uh, the tribes in Connecticut and the East Coast. So, um, you know, that that's how diverse foods are. But, you know, I would say right now, um, you know, that there are a couple of uh, similarities, I guess, you know, a lot of tribes have had, um, you know, corn, beans and squash for a very long time. And that's what you'll see right now uh, as kind of like the the three pillars of Native American food is corn, beans and squash. But we're always, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, remembering that a lot of food that we find in our grocery stores and that we eat every day are, uh, indigenous. They have indigenous origins. So, um, 
uh, yeah, I hope that I hope that answers your question. I know uh, it, it's like a, a big, broad um, uh, definition, but also, you know, it has to do with what is indigenous to the land and how those tribes have uh, molded uh, different seeds and their agriculture to feed themselves. Right. No, I love that. And, and, and I'm too aware that it's such a broad question. And I know we can do so many shows just on that question alone. Um, I just yeah. wanted to. Yeah. I just want, but you did kind of remind me that I, I slightly regret not having breakfast now. So there's that. Um, <laughs> what was your process like learning about you know, your own connection with with food and your history and your family? Can you walk us through that process? Yeah, um, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, I didn't grow up in a very traditional household at all. And um, I, you know, grew up eating a lot of just regular, regular old American food. Um, but then, you know, really starting to learn about food from different cultures and food from all over the world. And then um, bringing all of that into like the journalism I started doing with Native America Calling, uh, focusing on Native issues and topics and then Native food, I started really thinking about like my connection and how really I don't really have a connection to Navajo food. And that's uh, really no fault of my own or my family's um, because there was a whole, you know, different chapters in Native American history um of a you know assimilation of forced assimilation and it was really the goal for uh the government to erase everything native about um you know native people so uh you know I, i'm i'm thinking about that uh in all of my reporting that i do and um yeah just like you said you know that there's no shortage of stories about native food i mean that's really all i do <laughs> that's all i do and um uh, there there's uh definitely a whole lot more to explore because there's so many like there's so many native food programs and uh chefs and farmers and um people who are doing this work in Native, Native America, there's so many of them just like popping up left and right all over the country, all over the world. And I'm like, my list, my story list is just getting like longer and longer and longer. So I'm going to, I'm going to be doing this for a long while. And at the same time, you know, learning about other people's food connections and, you know, um, uh, making sure I, I also learn about mine as well, which is which is an ongoing process, really. Well, I think you just inspired us to do an entire basically week or month just on a food tour. So we'll be calling <laughs> you on that. Right. And I wanted to talk to you, too. You know, why Toasted Sister, Andy? Um, <laughs> that everybody, everybody thinks that's, that's like, oh, it must be like a native, you know, something, a story from Navajo culture or something, <laughs> but it was really just a, a blog, um, I had before the podcast, it was a food, it was a food blog, but, uh, uh, the blog came from, uh, just me and a, and a former editor, uh, brainstorming like we need something catchy um you know because I was a food writer before uh I became a food podcaster <laughs> um so uh we wanted to start a uh, a blog that I could write all kinds of extra food stuff and share it with our with our audience and um we were thinking of a catchy name and you know it was him actually who was like 
twisted sister, toasted sister. And I'm like, yep, that's it. So <laughs> I carried that name of my blog into my podcast. I love it. And I mean, it is it is very catchy. And I love the juxtaposition that it's not really related to anything, but just a fun time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it doesn't have to be like so serious. And, you know, um, you know, coming from, you know, a very traditional place. I mean, you know, we can we can have fun with the uh, with stuff, too. No, we we love those vibes. And and I know you kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but in a, in a recent episode, you have talked about um, changing the culinary narrative of Native America and sort of shaking off old concepts of indigenous food. And I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the biggest misconceptions of about Native food? I think uh, some of the big misconceptions are that uh, Native people are always cooking outside and using, um, you know, really old tools and um, not very many, you know, different flavors and spices, Um, you know, but 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 it is uh, very much the opposite. I mean, uh, you know, just how people think about Native Americans in general, some people literally think that we don't exist. And we just we just walked away and that was the end of the narrative american chapter of america um so 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 you know all of our work as a journalist we're trying to um you know bring these stories or you know our current stories of our lives our lives and um issues that we find important and that uh um you know, affect us every day. Like that, that's our job to do that. And that's my job to do that with the Native American food is to show everybody that it is uh, very much alive. It is here in 2023. We have, uh, you know, a lot of Native chefs out there who, you know, of course have gone to culinary school, but mix all of that with, uh, you know, what they remember eating growing up, what their grandma has told them about traditional foods and what they're learning from their peers who are also, you know, out there learning about these wild foods and uh, traditional food ways. So, um, you know, I think that that's, uh, you know, those are what I'm trying to really highlight in um, my podcast and all the food work that I do and just, you know, in all the work that I do with Native America Calling as, as a producer, just showing people that here are all these issues right now that are affecting us and our food. So... Well, I know we're here to talk about music and and our relationship with land and sort of our human memories with that. But it seems to me that food also carries everything that we've been talking about this hour. And so I want to ask, you know, how does food sovereignty factor into this conversation? Food sovereignty factoring into this conversation? Um you know, it's, I don't think it can be separated. I mean, I think one of the first things the the first guest, you know, mentioned was like, and food. I mean, food is very much attached to our culture and, um, and our identity. So it, you know, it's, it can never be left out of anything, really. If you, if you look at any kind of issue or topic in Native America, uh, you know, it almost always just, it's all connected and, and, um, uh, food is always somewhere in there. 
And the U.S. Department of Interior had said there's no universal definition for food sovereignty, but it can't be described as the ability of communities to determine the quantity and equality of the food that they consume by controlling how their food is produced and distributed. Have you thought about this or what are your thoughts about about what the Department of Interior said? Well, yeah, that's a very broad, um, you know, the baseline definition of food sovereignty. Uh, but, you know, in the last eight years that I've been focusing on Native American food, uh, you know, I kind of uh, learned that there are a couple of different, um, uh, I guess, levels, you know, of, of food sovereignty. I mean, there's the most important, I think, is your individual food sovereignty, like your ability to literally cook for yourself and to be hungry hungry for these foods, Um, you know, because none of this food sovereignty work would mean anything if we ourselves as individuals didn't feel, didn't crave these foods and didn't learn how to cook with these foods and invite them into our own pantry. So, you know, that's one of the most important things that I learned. um, you know, doing this work for the last uh, almost decade. And then, you know, there's there's that uh, other level of food sovereignty where we have, yeah, the, the governments and tribal governments, uh, you know, working to preserve uh, these different, um, uh, you know, natural resources and um, the land uh, for, you know, food production. Um yeah, I mean, you know, people in the political level, people in agriculture, um, you know, cultural cultural warriors who are out there, you know, trying to share, uh, you know, knowledge of traditional food. So, um, yeah, there's a couple of different ways you can think about food sovereignty. But of course, I think the most important is your own uh, individual food sovereignty and how everybody um how everybody brings these foods literally into their kitchens. So I only have about a minute left, but I do want to ask you really quickly, do you have a favorite ingredient that you like to work with? Oh my goodness. I think I I think I have to man, it's going to have to be uh wild rice. <laughs> Um. Uh. Yeah, it's gonna have to be wild rice. It's just. Yeah. I. I came. It came into my kitchen. Uh. As like a sample. <laughs> um. A couple of years ago, and since then, there's there's wild rice in the freezer, in uh the pantry. I I like to use it in soups as a side. It's just it's just so good. It, it, you can do so much with it, and you know I've seen people make pancakes with it. Um. It, you know, into a flour, have it popped and crunchy on top of a salad. I mean, you know, mixed with berries as like a, a, a you know, dessert. You know, you can do almost anything with wild rice. And it is one of my favorites. Well, we know what we're doing after this. I want to thank Annie Murphy, a Navajo <laughs> journalist and podcaster. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs> 